Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joe Parks. Joe practices psychiatry at the Family Health Center, the nation's first approved Medicaid-funded certified community behavioral health clinic established to expand services to the uninsured and underinsured in Columbia, Missouri. He also currently serves as the medical director for the National Council for Mental Wellbeing, a 501c3 association that advocates for policies that ensure people with mental health and substance use challenges have access to comprehensive, high-quality services. Joe is a distinguished research professor of science at Missouri Institute of Mental Health with the University of Missouri St. Louis campus and has conducted research and published in the areas of implementation of evidence-based medicine, pharmacy utilization management, integration of behavioral health care with general health care and health care policy. We're going to be doing a two-part series in our time with Joe with a focus on being innovative in the delivery of care covering in part one his work with the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic, and then in part two, his work with the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. Joe, I want to welcome you to our show. So nice to have you here today. Really appreciate the conversation, Graham. This will be fun. I I would agree. You know, Joe, I know that your research, as I was mentioning in the introduction, has been around implementation, management utilization, integration of care and policy. What were you seeing in your community that led you to become involved with Missouri's Certified Community Clinic? You know, the reason I got into this was because of a particular patient that I worked with years ago. Her name was Vicki. And when I met Vicki, she was homeless. She had mental illness. She had methamphetamine and alcohol problems. She would call me up at all different hours of the day and weekend. At times she was uh, talking so fast I couldn't understand her. At other times she was sobbing or suicidal. And I, I worked with Vicki for years. For the first for the first year or so, it was addressing the methamphetamine. And she did really good in treatment. She got off it in 18 months. After that, it was treating her rapid cycling bipolar disorder. And that was mm-hmm. easier to get control. It was very treatable with medication. That only took about six, nine months. After that, we worked simultaneously on her alcohol dependence and her long-standing post-traumatic stress disorder. She had been abused as a child, had been in abusive relationships as an adult. So after working with, with Vicki for about eight, 10 years, she was living in a stable apartment, going to community college, had friends wow. that were exploiting her, that were treating her well. And she dropped dead of a large clot that came out of her leg and obstructed the big vein that goes up to your heart so her lungs couldn't get any oxygen. What had happened to Vicki is during all this treatment, she had continued to smoke, and because she smoked, she was taking steroids to knock down the wheezing and the inflammation, which made her bipolar disorder worse, so she needed more mood stabilizer, which means she got heavier and she was overweight. So here's a person where her mental health care had been perfect. Yes, It was a complete victory with every mental health battle, and she was dead because we hadn't tracked the whole person and taken care of her physical problems also. She had worked so hard and didn't get to enjoy the benefits of recovering from mental illness that she had worked so hard to do. I didn't want to have more patients like Vicki, and there's too many out there that struggle with mental illness and get killed by the chronic medical disorders because our systems have not been set up 
to track both yeah. and to exchange information in an integrated manner so that all the treatment providers know what each other are doing. I really like that. So this certified community behavior health clinic, providing some of the comprehensive services you're talking about, these clinics are a new provider type in Medicaid, aren't they? They're designed to provide the comprehensive range of mental health, substance use, medical health services. And in return, I'm understanding, I'd like you to expand upon just a little bit more though, but in return, I'm understanding the clinics receive an enhanced Medicaid reimbursement rate based on the cost of expanding your services to meet the needs of these complex presenting problems that you're discussing. Tell us more about the services provided and the ways that these clinics get to work so effectively. That's correct, Graham. And it's, it's a combination of both having more integrated advanced services, but yeah. also having a correct payment mechanism that can sustain that over yes. time. You know, medicine is rapidly changing. There's a lot of innovative treatments and the simple fee-for-service payments never keep up That's right. with what's new and innovative and what people really need. And this payment mechanism does. So the, the certified community behavioral health centers, as you said, have to treat mental illness. They have to treat substance use disorder. They also have to screen and coordinate the general medical care. They have to figure out if you're at risk or getting diabetes or hypertension and track if that's getting better or worse and make sure that you get the primary care that you need. Some actually do the primary care themselves, other okay. quarterback and coordinate with another primary care in your community. They also have to provide crisis services 24-7, yeah. mobile crisis response in the community and link people back to ongoing care when that crisis gets better. It's not like, oh, good, crisis is over, you're done, go away. Really good. So like you're saying, these are kind of a myriad services to meet the needs of whatever anybody is presenting to you. Substance use, mental health, physical health. These are evidence-based practices uh, in the care coordination being provided here. And there are partnerships maybe necessary with other primary care or hospital partners. They have to have those agreements with the hospitals, with primary okay. care, with Got the it. local schools. They're plugged into their community. Really good. So this model then, just to so our listeners can really appreciate that this is a comprehensive care being provided. And these clinics, in addition to the access to care to help stabilize people in crisis or maybe a complex mental health illness or substance use, they also have already established partnerships and coordinated care with other programs. I know as I was reading up about it, rural health clinics, inpatient psychiatric, detox centers, residential programs, even in the schools and in child welfare, even justice agencies and the Veterans Administration even in the Indian Health Regional Services as well. That's a pretty broad range. Absolutely. To do it right, you have to be across the whole person's life needs because it depends on other social things like the housing we're getting, the education, the supports yeah. we get. And if you just pay attention to the blood pressure, you're going to miss that a person's not healthy and doing poorly because they're homeless or because they're having conflict with their landlords or neighbors. It takes a whole person approach to really get people healthy. Really good. These services, Joe, you're talking about, I want to just name a couple for those that are interested in, and these are 24-7, 365 mobile crisis team that can respond if necessary. You have immediate screenings and risk assessment for mental health, addictions, basic primary care needs. There's also a tailored care for active duty military and, and, and veterans, an expanded care coordination with the local primary care providers and hospitals, like you mentioned. 
and a really truly a commitment to peers and family recognizing their involvement, it sounds like as well, in the essential part of the recovery for those going through the treatments through your clinics. It's pretty broad. It is. It is. Because, you know, these people have multiple chronic illnesses. They're struggling not just with mental illness, but with several medical illnesses. They may be on eight or 10 different medications. It's a lot to keep track of. And these are illnesses that interfere with concentration, memory, ability to keep things organized. People need help. We need to be tracking this data and information for them and not depending on them to remember it all and keep it correct. Why would we think that would ever work? If we think that that works, we end up kind of blaming the victim, don't we? We don't provide what they need. If they could do it, they would do it. And maybe at the end of some of the work, they start to take on more and more of that responsibility. But getting out of the gate, getting engaged, accessing treatment is not an easy thing. It's just not. And if we can provide some guidance in that and shepherd them through it, at least the initial stages, it sure is a help. And if you think about it, you know, being medically ill doesn't make you think straight. And certainly having a mental illness makes it hard to concentrate and keep things safe. So having a system where you have to keep track yourself of all these different providers, conditions, and medicants, it would be like the cardiac clinic for congestive heart failure being three flights of steps up. Yeah, exactly. If you get up the stairs, you don't need the treatment. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about barriers like flights of stairs. I know that addressing some of the financial barriers has always been a challenge in providing care. Insufficient funding, I know, has long posed a barrier increasing Americans' access to behavioral health care. But this model clearly addresses financing shortfalls by paying clinics, like we were talking earlier, a Medicaid rate that is inclusive of their anticipated costs for expanding the services that you're describing to us in the very service lines, servicing the new customers coming in. And it sounds like this really allows the financial barrier to be addressed in a very needed way that has not been addressed in years past. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you think about it, a single rate is either always going to overpay or underpay providers because costs are not the same. The cost for the healthcare salaries are different in the country than they are in the city. The cost for the space to do treatment is different. Costs vary. And by expecting to pay organizations a single one-size-fits-all rate, it's always going to underpay or overpay. So the way this method works is you take the whole cost of the agency and you divide it by all the visits they have each year and you pay that much per visit, but you only pay one visit a day. If you get seen two or three times, that's built into the rate also. So you're paid this average bundled rate which covers your total costs, but gives you operational flexibility to do innovative different treatments. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years. Working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com. And use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. I would imagine it does allow, I'd like to hear a little bit about that, actually. Some of the innovation 
I mean, that this is kind of right down your wheelhouse here, the things that you like to be creative in, it sounds like. Talk about some of the innovation that you found coming into the programs that allow you to meet the needs that are being presented. One of the more evidence-based practices is called collaborative care. It's where it's not just me as a doctor asking, hey, how are you doing, Graham? And then deciding how I adjust your medication. Right. You're given a rating scale called the PHQ-9, asking you nine questions about how depressed you are and how you're dealing with it every time you come in. Just like primary care checks your blood pressure or weight yes. every time you come in. And then we track that across the whole practice for all patients. And we look for people that look like they're still depressed yes. and are not getting better. They're not trending in the right direction. The treating doctor then has the uh, the care coordinator come to them and say, well, Dr. Parks, here's a list of your patients that look like they're still pretty depressed. They're not doing well. Would you please figure out something different to do with each of them? That's so good. It's data-driven so care, but you have to pay for the screening all the time. You have to pay for the data system to track everybody. You have to pay for the care coordinator. It does twice as good as care as usual, where I just ask you how you do it, Graham, and then change your meds one at a time but it has these other costs. These are covered in this kind of perspective payment where for most other payment methodologies, they're, they're not built in. Yeah, it's really good. I like the idea of things being data-driven or metric-driven so that they can be measured and people that are outliers or still not making improvement can be identified and whatever's going to be of need kind of assessed and, and brought into the care. You're talking about those that are eligible. As I read about it, I learn more about it. It's basically anybody in need. They have to serve anybody that comes to them. They get yeah. a special rate for Medicaid people. We could really use the same kind of methodology in Medicare and commercial. Hopefully someday we'll get there. Yes, that's really good. So just to kind of identify that. So regardless of someone's ability to pay, you're caring for those that are tend to be underserved, maybe have low income or uninsured or underinsured on Medicaid again, and also those that are active duty military and veterans as well. Yeah. You know, of course, mental illness interferes with your ability to hold a job often. You bet. So if you want to treat that illness, you have to have ways of taking care of people that can't hold a job or are underemployed or get very low wages because of the impairment from them being able to earn a, a nice large living. Yeah. I, I always like to see the impact of programs like this on not just individuals and their families, but what are you seeing the impact and benefit being on the community as a result of these services provided through your clinic? Oh, it really frees up things. I mean, some of these centers will like have a mental health specialist in the local ER, so the ER doesn't get as backed up with mentally ill people. We're seeing a large growth of mental health services being delivered in the school. So the parents yeah. can keep working. You know, you have a couple of kids who's gonna watch one kid while you take the other kid to right. the doctor. If they get it right there in the school, they're much more likely to have that increased access to care. And how much easier is it for the police to have a mobile crisis team where 911 isn't the only responder? You know, we didn't give these police training no. in many cases for behavioral no. health. We're asking them to do something they didn't sign up for, totally that they're not trained for. And frankly, us in the healthcare are letting them down and should be taking care of it. And the CCBHCs do take care of it. You can ask any sheriff that's got a CCBHC in their territory if it made a difference or not. I have no doubt about that. What a nice service to provide them. You're right. They're not equipped and that's not what we're asking really to do, but yet we expect them to do these things. And there's some unique challenges. You're mentioning access to care. I want to cite a couple of things that I think are so significant. And I would imagine are part of the community being benefited and being able to have this kind of service. I know that access to and wait times 
for needed care has always been a challenge, even nationwide. We know that, in fact, the average wait time for services is about 48 days nationwide. But your community clinics have sharply, sharply reduced these wait times. 50% of the clinics can provide same-day access to care. 84% of the patients are seen within one week for their first appointment, and 93% are seen within 10 days. This is a significant improvement, isn't it, in accessing care? Oh, I bet a lot of your listeners wish they could get an appointment that quick with their health care providers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So these I mean, are some I went of the to benefits. my doctor for hypertension. He was scheduling six weeks out. I <laughs> to the doctor treating hypertension of the CCBHC. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, yeah, exactly. My doctor's at the university medical center and they're <laughs> six weeks out. Yeah. Crazy. I know. Well, I, I certainly appreciate learning more about this. You know, I would love for those that are interested to have some resources that they could learn more about these clinics, maybe in their area or what they're going on. Do you have any resources for us that you could share with our, with our listeners that we'll also include on our site for them to learn more about you, what you're doing, the clinics themselves? Absolutely. If your listeners do a browser search for National Council for Mental Wellbeing and CCBHC, they will find tons of information, a lot of resources there, both for the general public and for clinics that want to get involved and know how to meet these standards. That's really good. Really good. We'll include some of those on our site as well. Well, you know, Joe, I know uh, that with past funding models like grants and private insurance payments, et cetera, you know, we typically find ourselves only having time-limited services or services that are limited maybe to special populations and programs. But I love this new model and uh, it shows what can happen when you're given financial flexibility to do right things and to achieve results that previously were only thought attainable, but now they are. It's a life changer and it makes the community a better place for everybody else. Just real quickly, you know, as we're talking about, people have talked about, you know, national healthcare Do you see a model like this expanding into something along those lines? You know, we've seen rapid expansion in the last five years. This model's only been out there five years, and there are 430 centers in pretty much every state in the union. It has grown rapidly. Fantastic. Broad bipartisan support. This is one of the few things that both the Democrats and Republicans agree on. That's a good trick. (laughs) <laughs> Thank goodness something they can reach across the hall to, to talk about. Well, hey, Joe, it's been great to have you on the show today. And uh, congratulations on the work you do in the community and the services being uh, rendered here to those in need. Well, thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure talking with you been great to have you here. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Joe and me today on the show. It's always great to have you with us. I'd like to encourage you to listen to the second half of this podcast series, where Joe and I will be discussing his work with the National Council for Mental Wellbeing and their work in addressing policy and social change on behalf of nearly 3,500 mental health and substance use treatment organizations and the more than 10 million children, adults, and families that they serve. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.